All right. Well, good morning, guys. So we are, we're taking a break from our series on the Sermon on the Mount, but don't worry, Jesus is not finished with us yet. We are going to be back to finish up Matthew chapters 5 through 7 in September. Uh, last year, we started what we hope to be just this amazing tradition here at First Baptist Church. I mean, every summer, we are going to dive into the book of Psalms and take 10 to 12 just every year just to strengthen our souls, to meditate on the truth and beauty of God, and just to learn how to pray the words of God through our humanity and back to him. And so the Psalms touch on all of these different emotional senses and human experiences. There is there's depression and anxiety, there's creativity, there's love and family, there's mystery and confusion and desperation, hope, anger, conviction, doubt, happiness, gratitude, humility. The full spectrum of human emotion and experience the full range of humanity is on display in the Psalms. And as we read through them and sing them and pray them, we are led by them into an encounter with the living God. So it is a valuable and worthwhile part of our year that we take this summer and, well, the next decade or so of summers just to sit back and reflect and immerse ourselves in, in the wonder and beauty of what Bonhoeffer calls the prayer book of the Bible. Now, before you leave today, just make sure that you, uh, as, you're, as you're leaving, as you're way out today, just make sure you grab one of these summer reading plans off of the info table in the back. I, I want to challenge you this summer to read through the entire book of Psalms, all 150 of them. I want you to read them. I want you to dwell on them. I want you to pray through them. I want you, I want, I want them to sink in deeply and become embedded into your soul. Now, here's how we've broken this up. Uh, every morning you have a psalm, and every evening you have a psalm. You, you pray a psalm when you wake up, and you pray a psalm before you go to sleep. The songs of God will be the first thing you hear and the last thing you hear. Two psalms a day, except in August. Uh, midway through August is Psalm 119, and, and since 119 is 176 verses, uh, we chose not to punish you and torment you, but, but just to break it up over the course of about 10 days or so. So uh, this, this all is a great way for our community just to hear the words of God together to, to, in a way, to sync up our prayer life and to encounter God together as one. So this morning, we are going to start our series with Psalm 8. And this is all about the awe and wonder that sets in when we recognize just how great our God is, just how small we are, and how much he loves us and values us all the same. This is about our prayer to King Yahweh. So I want to just begin our time by watching a, a short video together, and then we will pray and, and dig in. 
Father, we just ask that you would open up our eyes to see the Psalms in an amazing new way this morning, that, that, we would, that we would be willing to hear you speak creatively and, and powerfully and, and unusually to us through these songs and prayers in the Psalms. And that it would open our eyes just to see differently, think differently, love differently, react differently to the things of the world. That we would respond to you in awe. Father, that's my prayer this morning. Just would you speak to us and through us and in us today as we read, as we reflect, and as we, we pray and, and love together. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's get into David's poem. Everybody, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to verse 1 of Psalm 8. Yahweh our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. All right, now, just by looking at the first line and, and the last line of this psalm, we, we know what kind of song it is. It's, it's a royal song. It's a song about the mastery and reign of a good king. Now, we, when we read it in English, we read, Lord, our Lord, and that's a bit strange to our tongues. You don't refer to me as Jacob, our Jacob. Uh, I, don't, I don't call Bethany, wife, my wife. Like, that doesn't. It doesn't make any sense, right? So in the original language, it reads, Yahweh nu Adonai, Yahweh our Lord, Yahweh our master and ruler. So David starts by calling God by, by his name, which we very often do not do very, very much in the church um, because of just our, 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 our English Bibles and the cultural appropriations that have come through that. But it is an, I think it is a valuable thing to do. Yahweh, our Lord, David starts, he calls out God's name, and then he asserts his, his title, his role, his authority over David's life. And he does this because, as we will find out soon enough, David is writing this song as, as he stands beneath the night sky just enveloped by stars and constellations and the moon. Notice there's no mention of the sun. There's only nighttime objects in this psalm. And so he sets himself under this, this canvas painted with, with utter magnitude and luminance, and he just sits in awe over how great his God truly is. And he, he cries out in weakness and humility to the king of glory. And that humble cry, David says, is important. Because Yahweh is so mighty and so powerful and so strong and so faithful that just uttering his name is like fortifying walls of protection around him. It's like there is no enemy, no adversary, no opposition that can possibly stand against him. Human power, essentially, the might of any created being falls powerless under just the name of Yahweh, the name of the creator. 
So when David speaks out the name of Yahweh, it's one part declaration, but it's also one part invocation. Because when you welcome in the presence of the mighty God King, you also banish any power that dares stand against you. So I would encourage you then to let God's reign and rule, his power and might and his magnificence to determine the trajectory of your prayers. Because when you begin with God's sovereignty, you can set your own aside. In other words, a a prayer of wonder and awe like this can help you when you struggle with control. Either when you you lack it, when you feel powerless over your own life, or when you just thirst for it insatiably. I mean, so that feeling when, when you lack control that's when your enemies are all around you and, and you are in need of a rescuer. That feeling when you demand control, well, that's when you are the enemy and you need to be put in your place. So the psalmist is going to continue here in verse three. He says, when I observe your heavens, the, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, see those celestial objects, which you set in place, What is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him? Again, the word that comes to mind when I hear these these words of David is awe. And and to be honest, I actually struggle with that because I have sat in far too many Bible studies where we read a passage and someone just blurts out, I mean, isn't God awesome? And, and if you were one of those people, I just, I just want to apologize in advance for offending you or, or in post for offending you. Uh, come to me afterward. We'll just, we'll reconcile together. It's all right. Because, and, and I say that though, because awesome, when it's used in this way, is just like, it's kind of like a colloquial speech, meaning, you know, it's, it's cool that God did so and so, but Not so amazing that I I want to spend any more time than necessary going deeper with it. So God, isn't God awesome? Great, let's move on to the next part, right? And so I think it's time then that we reclaim this word. So here's my definition for awe. Awe is this sense of unfiltered, unhindered, expansive wonder that overwhelms the senses, that overwhelms the very sense of who I am and leaves me speechless. Awe is the sense of unfiltered, unhindered, expansive wonder that overwhelms the senses and overwhelms the very sense of who I am and leaves me speechless. David speaks of the heavens as this painting of color and light, of creation and power and innocence and beauty. And he he invites us just to quiet our hearts and simply dwell. And he says all of this, all of this creativity and innovation and bursting energy, it's, it's all the work of his fingers. Not of his hands, not of his voice, but his fingers, it's, it's the work of a skilled technical craftsman. 
Now, when I was growing up, I, I built a few, a few models, cars and boats and airplanes uh, when I was a kid, and, and I was not very good at them. But there's one thing that I learned. You gotta have nimble fingers because those plastic pieces, they're fragile and there's so much detail in those tiny little parts and you gotta get the glue on there and the painting and the whatever and the stickers and, and everything just requires all this precision and care or else the whole thing is ruined. I did not have very nimble fingers. So my models were not that amazing. But Yahweh, it says, Yahweh has nimble fingers. Now, two things that I really, I very quickly want to say about that. One, the Bible is not a science textbook. It is a theology book. Did God literally put planets and stars together with his fingers? I don't think so, because God doesn't have fingers. He is not a limited human being like me, you, and me. He doesn't have physical body parts. He is an invisible, immortal, immaterial being. So why then, if that's the case, why would David write that God does have fingers? Now remember... Psalms are poetry. And poetry is a different genre than history or the prose discourse of the New Testament letters. It's a different genre of literature. And because of that, it means that poetry in the Bible plays by different rules. And, and you can have a preference and say, you know, that's why that, that whole poetry thing, that's why I only read Paul. Um, but, but think about this. 30% of your Bible is poetry. It is a major part of the sacred text that you claim to trust. So I think if that's the case, it's kind of important that we, we just take the time to read it and, and to sometimes suffer through it, to seek the beauty in it, and to discover these, these words, these metaphors, this, the, these constructs that have been somewhat hidden to us because of, just because of the nature of the writing. So, why does it say that God has fingers? It's not because he has actual fingers. It's not because poetry is annoying. It says that God has fingers because God cares. God values his creation so much that he is intimately involved in the details. And it's tempting to look up at the night sky with these billions of stars spread over it and entire galaxies of, of energy and motion and power. And just think about God's transcendence. That's after all what David does. He says, who am I that, that you would be mindful of me? And he is so much bigger, so far away, so beyond me. So he's nothing like me, especially when I am at my worst. But despite that, despite how much he transcends my imaginations or my limits as a faulty and frail and failed created being, he loves, he cares, he makes himself known. 
The God of the universe invades time and space and matter and becomes present with me. He is awesome. He is wonderful. Now here's where David is going to hit us just hard, right in the gut in this poem. Here is Yahweh, this creator God, this divine painter of light and motion and color, this, this craftsman of life and energy and activity and matter, and here is me, just plain old me. See, knowing who God is compels us to ask the question, who am I? And how we answer that question differs greatly from how we would if we were to start with ourselves as the basis for that question. See, when we start with ourselves, we have an incomplete picture of our place in this world. Left to define our identity, having a faulty criteria, we determine that we must be, uh, I, one, I am the sum of my abilities. Uh, I am what I have to offer. I am the sum of my experiences, meaning I, I am what I do, or I am what was done to me. Uh, three, I am the sum of my feelings, so I am what I feel. Or uh, I am who I am in relationship to others. I am what other people are or what other people are not. And so then, once we decide who we are, after that, then we choose to define God in relationship to who we are and in relationship to our identity. So uh, what can God offer? If I am the sum of my abilities, if I am what I have to offer, then what can God offer me? If I am what I do or, or what was done to me, then what did God do? What did God do to me or for me? If I am the sum of my feelings, I am what I feel, then, you know, how do I feel about God? What do, what do my emotions say? And then if I am what others are or are not, and, and that's my I'm relationship to them, then what does God have that I don't have? So when we, when, we, when we reverse the order of that conversation, when we start with ourselves and then we move on to God versus what David does, or Daniel, or yeah, David does, um, what happens when we do this? What happens is that we end up containing and isolating and contaminating the awe of Yahweh. See, we, we still, we're human beings. We always want to encounter awe and wonder. Like, it, I think it's built into us. It's, it's, a crea like it's an inherent trait of humanity that we dr are driven, drawn to and desire awe and wonder. But like Paul tells the Romans, we often are willing to exchange the truth of God for a lie. And we substitute creation for creator, and we delight in our weak excuse for wonder. 
Now, I'm not sure if you know this, and I'm, I'm certain that you do not care, but the Worldwide Developers Conference was this week. And, and that's the time when tech companies, they're going to put out all these new models of their software and new devices and new fancy technology that's smarter and faster and shinier and just more distracting than ever before. And so uh, Apple in particular, because I, I don't care about any other company but Apple, uh, Apple came out with dark mode, and so uh, which is this fancy term that basically means your phone can be dark instead of light now. Incredible. And, and, and then they also came out with a really fast computer that can edit HD video, and they have a big fancy screen that can show more pixels than ever before, and so now they can do 6,000 pixels instead of 4,000 pixels, and, and we're supposed to ooh and ah over all of that. And, and seriously, people just go nuts for it. And they are, they're clapping and cheering and whooping and hollering because a screen... A, a, a computer screen can reproduce, however convincingly, but altogether artificially, the beauty of the real world. And that artificial awe compels us to turn, rather than turning up and out and around, it compels us to turn down, inward, and toward the fake version of awe, a screen. And at the same time, all the while, God's glory and might and power have been on unceasingly full display, unlimited, unfurled, unfiltered, and just beyond the digital mask that we put in front of us. See, if you start with God, if you begin with his expansive power and might and glory and honor, then you are necessarily going to be faced with your own limitations. That as, as much as you think you can do, as big as you think you are, you can't do that. And if that's the case, then what business would the God of the universe have to consider you and your issues and your problems and your life circumstances? And yet, he does. He cares for you. See, when we try to determine our value for ourselves, we, we think that that is going to be the greatest amplifier of our own value and worth, and yet it all crumbles in the face of an almighty God. But when the almighty God determines our value for us, it gets lifted and expanded and secured and the reason why is that you don't matter because you say you matter. You matter because God matters and he says that you matter. Let me say that one more time. You don't matter because you say that you matter. You matter because God matters and he says you matter. You are more than the sum of your abilities 
or your experiences or your feelings or your comparisons. Because all of those things are are limited by you and they can be driven away in, in a moment. But there is this faithful and powerful and indescribable being who has... Uh, who wants to have relationship with, of all people, you. And that should evoke awe and wonder and worship. So, So that being said, given that our place is not what we determine, but what God has planned for us, then, then, then what is our place? How do we fit when we are confronted with the expansive and creative God and, and with our own puny limitations. David goes on in verse 5. He says, You made him little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. Yahweh, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. See, what the psalm is trying to tell us is that our worth is not not determined by, by ourselves, but by God. And the fact that he considers us. The fact that he does consider us should leave us speechless and should ask us to question how, and yet he does. And the mere fact that he does consider you means that you have a value. And so what is that value? One is simply that he cares about you. One is simply that there is relationship to be found, that you are loved and welcomed and invited into this king's family for relationship. Now, two, the other thing that he, he, he offers you as a fit in this, this, this whole place is, is that you have a responsibility through the work of God. He gives you basically this role of, of a middle manager. And that, that's an interesting term, obviously, that you would be considered a, a middle manager. But, but think about it this way. The creator of the world, he, is the, he would be considered, obviously, the CEO. He is the founder of the company, the founder of the world. He sets the rules. He, he sets the mission and the vision and the core values. And then he creates man and woman. And he says, he says, go forth and have dominion. In other words, go forth and rule on my behalf over the world. Multiply, spread goodness and and flourishing and beauty. I have given you all of these raw materials of land and animals and and space. Go forward and build and create and and garden and cultivate and tend to. 
I'm going to give you this mission and vision and these core values, these boundaries. From there, I want you to take it and I want you to go and rule in my name. You are a middle manager over the whole world. That's what David says. And so because of that, you have been created unmistakably in the image of Yahweh. And, and if you look in, in the Old Testament, the word image literally is, can be translated as idol. In other words, like a statue. And so uh, when, 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 for example, when, when Moses comes through and he receives these Ten Commandments and they say, don't, and God says, don't make any idols of me. The reason why he says that is he's saying, don't make manufactured, man-made versions of me to worship because I have already made images of me on the earth. And that is you. And these are not things to rule. These are things that will take my good rule and through them, my good rule and my good works will be done throughout the world. We have been made, in other words, to be these mirrors that are angled just so to reflect the unlimited glory of God out to the world. However limited our own glory may be, however restricted we are at, at creating glory for ourselves, our best function in this world is to reflect the glory of God to the rest of the world. And what happens sometimes is that when we choose to live for ourselves, when fear and unbelief in this God or, or that we, we, we fall into self-protection mode for ourselves, what happens is that, that that mirror image gets twisted and contorted into like a, a funhouse mirror so that it stops reflecting God and reflects only inward onto itself. And so what we project out to the world is not ended up becoming uh, divine glory, but a human glory, which, which means that we project out not compassion and grace and, and trustworthiness and forgiveness. We, no, we project out selfishness and limits and negativity and fear and ultimately death because, you know, just like when you turn two mirrors onto another, the image just wraps around and around itself and it reciprocates and duplicates over and over again into infinity. And so in a way, that mirror image becomes your fate. So instead, what we are given to help untwist that, that mirror is, is reclaiming a sense of awe and wonder. Awe is that simple look to the heavens that untwists the mirror, that unwraps the image and reorients it around something eternal, something glorious, something full of life and power and potential. Awe restores our dignity by taking the attention of ourselves and placing it on the one that matters. And when he matters, we matter.
Let's pray. Yahweh, you are the king. God, I just ask that where we have lost our sense of awe and wonder, where, other, where we have either twisted it upon ourselves or we have misdirected it towards something artificial and fake, we just ask that you would help us in our unbelief to turn our eyes upward and outward and around towards your good beauty and sense of, of, of creativity and wonder. Help us, God, to live in our, our, our functions that you would consider us and that you would employ us into the world to carry forth your good works and your beauty and, and, and your, your plans for this world. And that as we do that, we would give you all glory and honor and praise and that, and that that would be the reflected image of our lives. Father, we thank you and we recognize that we could not do that on our own that your son has graciously worked to untwist the mirror of our lives that was irreversibly and irreparably marred and contorted. God, the greatest awe and wonder moment that I could ever consider is how you, this immortal, invisible, immaterial God, chose to become visible, mortal, material, flesh and bone to take our sin, to take our, our shame, to remove blinders from eyes, to untwist the iniquity, the bentness of our souls, to help us to see you and live for you. I thank you for Jesus who has restored that sense, that capability to see awe and wonder once again. So God, help us to live that. Help us to fight against fear and unbelief, to trust in you that you are a good and gracious king who loves us, who cares about us, and who is always working for us. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.